You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out how to consult and manage a pregnant woman who's been exposed to a child with a rash. In the case of chickenpox, uh, the mother can have severe chickenpox with pneumonia that might even be fatal. But before that, a paper published on BMJ.com looks at discontinuation of antidepressants in patients with dementia and other neuropsychiatric symptoms. Earlier this week, I talked to one of the authors of that paper, Svere Bereg, from the Centre of Old Age Psychiatric Research at Sunderud Hospital in Norway. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Svere. Yes, thank you very much. Now, um, my first question is that uh, in the paper you say that the reason for these patients being prescribed antidepressants, both a mixture of older ones and SSRIs, is unclear. Um, I'd just like to go into that a bit more. Do you have any idea why they're prescribed? The, the, the patients in, in our study are recruited from uh, nursing homes in, in Norway. And we know from other studies that as much as 40% of the patients in nursing homes are prescribed antidepressants at a regular basis. We're not quite sure why they are prescribed them uh, as the evidence for antidepressants, both in depression in dementia and also for the neuropsychiatric symptoms in dementia are fairly weak. So we think that maybe some of them are prescribed antidepressants as antipsychotics that used to be prescribed are no longer that much in use. So you wanted to see the effect of discontinuation of um, SSRIs in particular on uh, depression, neuropsychiatric symptoms and side effects in some of these patients. So you've designed a study to do that. Um, could you tell us about your study? The study was in 52 nursing homes in, in Norway, in, including patients with uh, either Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. And they all had uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms, but now depression. That was the main point for us, that the patients should not be prescribed antidepressants for a, a depressive disease, but rather the symptoms of dementia. Oh. It was a randomized controlled trial where half of the patients were randomized to discontinuing medication and the rest were continuing on the original medication. And the discontinued group received a placebo instead? Yeah, right. So it was double-blinded. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your patient group? How did they fit with the, the general population in nursing homes? In terms of uh, sex and age and the cognitive impairment, they were quite similar to the to the general population in nursing homes in, in Norway. As much as 80% of, of nursing home patients in Norway have dementia. Now, as you say, you randomise them into two groups to continue and discontinue their medication. Um, and then you studied them at 4, 7, 13 and 25 weeks. So what did you measure at those times? seven different kind of assessment scales really used in, in dementia care and, and research. The main objective was the Cornell scale, which is a scale for depression symptoms in dementia. Mm-hmm. We also used the neuropsychiatric inventory, which is the assessment scale for, for neuropsychiatric symptoms in dementia. That was the two main. But we also assessed uh, quality of life, all their living function, cognition, uh, and side effects, of course, yeah. At these uh, junctures, when you took these measurements, what did you find? If you look at the Cornell scale of depression and dementia first, 
we saw that the mean or average score in the group of patients discontinued treatment increased from baseline to 25 weeks with about two points, which is uh, a quite huge increase in, in terms of the numbers, but, mm-hmm. but this is uh, still uh, below the, the threshold for a depressive disease. Sure, and on the Cornell scale, it's a score of eight that's yeah, indicative. In, in the Norwegian population, it's eight for a depressive disease, and it's 13 for a severe depression. And how about the other measures? Was there a, a significant difference in those? No, not in the neuropsychiatric inventory. But we also divided the neuropsychiatric inventory into subscales, where affective symptoms is, is one subscale. Mm-hmm. which is uh, depression, depressive symptoms and, and anxiety. Uh, and for that subscale, there was a significant uh, difference in the group, uh, an increase in, in the discontinuing group. So um, overall, looking at your results there, um, if there isn't a huge change in uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms, cognition, etc., and there's a slight change, uh, but perhaps below the threshold for uh, depressive symptoms, I mean, what does this mean for the prescription of SSRIs in this population? Well, the first point to clear out is that our cohort of patients is patients that have been prescribed antidepressants for some reason not kind of documented that it's a depression that they had, but for some apathy or or something, they have been prescribed antidepressants. Mm. So we cannot generalize our results directly to whether or not it's it's good to start antidepressants if you have dementia and neuropsychiatric symptoms. Mm -hmm. So so what we can say is is in our cohort that have been prescribed antidepressants for a time, and then discontinuing treatment, uh, there is a, a mean change in, in the group discontinuing treatment. But uh, nevertheless, we also did uh, analysis on how many patients that had a, a shift from, from a score on Cornell between 0 and 13 to a score on 14 and above. Mm-hmm. And there were quite few patients that had a shift from a non-clinical depressive symptoms to, to a clinical depression. So for the most of the patients in the in the group we studied, it was safe uh, and without big alternations in their their symptoms after its discontinuation of medication. Sure. So perhaps it's a case of more that if you have a patient uh, on SSRIs who is uh, has dementia or Alzheimer's and you you're thinking about taking them off there. This is this is perhaps reassuring. Well, Ferry, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about this research. Yeah, thank you. And that paper is available for free on bmj.com. Now, Mabel Chu finds out about tests and treatments for a pregnant woman exposed to a child with a rash. I have with me Dr. Ethna McMahon, who is a consultant virologist from the Department of Infectious Diseases at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals in London. Now, Ethna, would you like to tell me, we have a young woman in the third trimester of pregnancy who casually mentions at her antenatal clinic appointment that her toddler has just come down with chickenpox. What would be the first thing we need to find out in trying to work out the next step? In this situation, alarm bells should ring 
because it's uh, crucial to know whether or not the child indeed does have or has had chickenpox and also whether or not the woman herself has uh, had a varicella zoster virus infection in the past. So the key thing to do is to ask her if she has had chickenpox or indeed shingles. If she has, and particularly if she grew up in a temperate climate, that's probably quite reliable. If, on the other hand, uh, she grew up in a subtropical or tropical climate, it may not be so reliable and it's probably better to do a blood test. Okay, now in this case, we have a clear medical diagnosis of chickenpox. But I wonder if the history had been more nebulous, if uh, all she'd said was that she'd had contact with a child who now has a rash, what would be the infections we'd be worried about? Basically, those in which there is possible intervention that can change the course for either uh, the mother or indeed the, the fetus. And these include chickenpox, measles, rubella and parvovirus. Now, chickenpox is typified by a vesicular or blistering rash, whereas the other three, measles, rubella and parvovirus infection, all cause maculopapular red rashes. And typically, these rashes are difficult to diagnose clinically. These rashes are quite nonspecific, and uh, it can be difficult to tell, particularly with third-hand information, which one the index case may have. It's frequently also very difficult to get a history um, of whether the, the rash was vesicular or maculopapular. People often don't look so closely if it's not their own child. Oh, that's quite true. And in those situations, really, probably uh, the best course of action is to consider the possibility that the woman may have been exposed to any of these four possible virus infections. The other thing that you did mention is that there might be a history that a woman was exposed to a child before the rash developed. And that's quite important, too, because for all of these four infections, the index case can be infectious prior to the appearance of the rash. Yes, your article, uh, which is being published in the BMJ, very nicely outlines uh, incubation periods and the period of infectiousness for contacts. So we'd encourage readers to look at that. Let's move on now to the type of exposure. What are the, the issues we need to ask specifically about? Well, depending on the nature of the exposure, there's a greater or lesser chance that the woman, if susceptible, will acquire infection. Now, typically, household exposure to your own child is associated with a very high risk of acquisition. On the other hand, contact in a big space uh, at some metres away is generally not of concern. The one exception there might be measles, which is notoriously transmissible. So what are the risks we're concerned about with uh, these four infections to either mother or baby? In the case of chickenpox, uh, the mother can have severe chickenpox with pneumonia that might even be fatal. For the uh, fetus in the first 20 weeks, there's a very small risk, but a risk nevertheless of congenital varicella syndrome. And then subsequently, around the time of birth, if mum has chickenpox, uh, the baby uh, can have uh, neonatal varicella with a high fatality rate. 
Uh, for measles, again, there's a risk to the mother of severe uh, pneumonia, which may be fatal. And uh, for the uh, fetus, there's an increased risk of uh, fetal loss early in pregnancy. In the case of uh, rubella, early infection can cause very severe, profound damage to the fetus uh, through congenital rubella syndrome. Uh, and in the case of parvovirus infection, there's an excessive fetal loss during pregnancy, and some babies actually can get heart failure in the womb, causing hydrops fatalis. But if that's diagnosed, it can be treated. Because there are interventions that can be done uh, for some of these infections if detected early enough, would you like to very quickly outline what these might be? The key thing with this sort of a clinical situation is timing. There's not a lot of time uh, to try and give preventative treatment, uh, which for varicella is varicella zoster immune globulin. For measles, human immune globulin injection. Uh, for rubella and parvovirus, there's no specific prophylaxis, but it's very important to make the diagnosis. It may be that the a woman would choose to terminate the pregnancy if exposure has occurred at a very high-risk time. And in the case of parvovirus, intervention may be possible with actually um, transfusion of the fetus in the womb um, to actually ameliorate the effects of infection. And that can be done with some success. Let's go back to our case. We, we've talked about what we need to ask about with the type of exposure, what we need to ask about with the index case. Let's turn to the mother. What do we need to know about from her? Okay. Well, obviously, it's very important to have good demographic and contact information uh, in this clinical situation. The risks vary with the stage of gestation, so that's important to know. If the woman has already booked her pregnancy and there's a stored booking blood in the laboratory, that's really useful because it can really expedite testing and decision-making. Obviously, you'd need to know if the mother was immunocompromised because that uh, might alter her medical risk and so forth. In terms of her uh, susceptibility, as I mentioned before, you'd ask whether or not she had a history of chickenpox or shingles. Also, whether or not she'd been vaccinated. Important to know if she's had a vaccination with the MMR. Two doses of vaccine should provide good protection, um, or indeed varicella vaccination. But again, uh, two doses would be required. And of course, the mum may already have had some blood tests done. So it may be that she already, you already know that she's rubella IgG positive, which contributes to the evidence needed for protection. Or indeed, she may already have had um, varicella zoster virus or, or measles IgG test done. Now, let's assume that uh, either she's not had these tests done or that um, they've been negative in the past. What are the tests that a GP would need to consider ordering at this point? And I should emphasise too that I guess a lot of GPs might be uncomfortable doing this on their own and would probably seek uh, specialist advice at this point. If we have um, an index case and the pregnant woman has been exposed, we don't know what the nature of the rash was, but we know that there was a significant, say for example, face-to-face -face exposure 
the tests that we would consider doing are varicella zoster virus, IgG, measles, IgG, if we don't have evidence of vaccination, and also uh, rubella, IgG, and IgM. And in the case of parvovirus, she would also need parvovirus, IgG, and IgM. Now, the important thing about rubella and parvovirus infections is that they're very often asymptomatic. And that's a concern because obviously the mother may not even realize that she's had them. So that's why we look for the IgM for evidence that she's already got evidence of infection. And indeed, if both tests are negative, she would require further follow-up to make sure that uh, she wasn't in, in, in the incubation period when she was tested. And what are some of the options available to us either for post-exposure prophylaxis or other management steps? In the case of um, chickenpox exposure, um, if the woman can report it and her susceptibility be identified within 10 days, uh, can be given uh, post-exposure prophylaxis in time, that would be an injection of varicella zoster virus immune globulin. Uh, in the case of measles, again, there's a fairly short time frame. It's recommended that post-exposure prophylaxis uh, with immune globulin uh, be given within six days. Um, in the case, unfortunately, of rubella and uh, for parvovirus, there isn't actually any prophylactic intervention. But it's nevertheless really important to um, make sure that susceptible women are identified and followed in case they do indeed have an asymptomatic or symptomatic infection because there may be important decisions to be made uh, about the uh, conduct of the pregnancy and indeed it may need to be more closely monitored in case intervention, therapeutic intervention is required. And that's because of the very, very high risk of devastating outcomes with congenital rubella if the mum acquires um, rubella infection in the first 11 weeks. Okay. For parvovirus, the paper mentions monitoring for fetal hydrops and possibly the need for intrauterine transfusion. Let's just very quickly run through um, risk reduction after a pregnancy, after such a scenario, uh, to prevent alarming situations like this developing again? Well, I think it's, it's really good if before a woman becomes pregnant, if her history of uh, chickenpox is established and she can be tested if necessary and actually vaccinated before coming, becoming pregnant. And the same actually also applies with measles and rubella because um, the live vaccine can't be given in pregnancy, but if pregnancy can be postponed, that would be ideal. It's really important um, for women to have the awareness, because if a woman knows that she should really, uh, that there's a risk of encountering a rash, she's more likely to report early. So I really think the, that, that patient education is key. That's excellent. And, and your article does outline in more detail all the items that we need to be discussing with them at this point. Edna, thank you very much for this very useful uh, summary. It's a complex area and um, uh, we do encourage people to look at the BMJ article for more detail. OK, and thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to give voice to this important public health issue. That's all for this week. 
Next week, we'll be finding out what the Hajj and the London Olympics have in common when it comes to disease surveillance. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.